Welcome back to Vertical Vision. I'm glad you could join me today as we continue our study about Jesus. And today's focus is on a statement that Jesus has made that is very exclusive. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now that doesn't sit well with a lot of people who thinks, well, what about all the people that haven't heard of Jesus and don't know Jesus and haven't heard the gospel? Well, we're going to delve into that issue today and see that Jesus is there and near and available for everyone. So grab your Bibles, open up to the book of John, and let's begin. John chapter 11, uh, and we're going to start in verse 17. Okay, so the last two I am statements, these statements are just huge, okay, and everything just comes together here. The first one that we will look at is when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and that's in uh, John chapter 11, beginning of verse 17, and I want to give you the backstory. Okay, what's going on here? Um, so Jesus has just declared himself to be the light of the world, right? We looked at that. Right after that, Jesus heals the man who was born blind. And then Jesus addresses the fact that, hey, you know what? Just because you're tied to Abraham and the vine of Israel, I am the true vine, and you need to be attached to me in order to be a part of the kingdom of God. Not Israel, not Abraham, it's me. And so that's transpired, and now we have Lazarus sick. And you know the story. Lazarus is sick, and... Mary and Martha go, you know what? Send a message to Jesus. Jesus will come. Boom, he's healed. Life's good. And we just keep on moving forward, right? And we know what happens. Jesus, please come. Uh, the one who you love, Lazarus, is, is dying. Your buddy's dying, and he needs your help. And so Jesus delays, and he lets Lazarus die. And he lets Lazarus lie in a tomb and begin to rot for four days. And it crushes the people. It crushes Mary and Martha. Now understand that what we're looking at here is also six days before Jesus goes to the cross. Six days before he gives his life and has already declared that he will rise again from the dead. So with what's about to happen at the cross is precluded by this, which is going to happen with the resurrection of a rotting man. And he's already declared himself to be the door, the vine, and the light. So a lot's happening right here within these few days. So let's pick up chapter 11, verse 17. And uh, let's look at what happens. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. He already knew that. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. 
So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a mild way of saying, you know what? If you'd come when we called you, this wouldn't be happening. We would not be in this predicament, Jesus. But that's, that's basically what she's saying here. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. There's faith. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha and Mary had no doubt of Jesus' ability to heal Lazarus. Later on, the people who are there, when they see Jesus there, going, you know, this man who just a few days ago, or maybe, yeah, just a few days ago, healed that man that was born blind? Couldn't he have healed his buddy Lazarus? They knew Jesus' power. They knew Jesus' ability. They also knew that Jesus had raised some people from the dead. Now, they hadn't been dead very long, but they were dead. You know, and Jesus, like Jairus' daughter, uh, she's asleep. And everybody's laughing. Oh, ha, 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 no, he's, she's dead. And just like, just get everybody out. And uh, he raises the little girl from the dead. And so Jesus had done that. People knew what he could do. But Jesus actually allows his friend to lie in the grave for four days to where his body begins to rot. Nobody had ever raised somebody from the dead who was already decaying. And Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the last day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the source of all life, and I am the source of the resurrection. And this is key because just in six days, he's going to the tomb himself. And he will be in the grave for three days and will rise again under his own power, under his own authority. So he's laying the groundwork here. So it's one thing to say, I am the resurrection and the life. And I have authority over the resurrection and I have authority over life. And it's a very different thing to prove it, right? And we'll get into this a little bit as we go further on as Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. So what does Jesus do? He tells them to open up the tomb. And Mary's like, you know, he's not going to smell good. You know, he's the, the King James, but Lord, by now he stinketh. That's what the King James says, all right? It's not going to be pretty. And Jesus says, remove the stone. And he calls the man out, Lazarus, come forth. And his body is completely restored. Life is put back in. And the man comes out of the tombs. This blew everybody's mind. A little bit later, just again, before Jesus is going to the cross, he's spending time at 
Lazarus's house. And people are coming from all over the place, one, because they want to see Jesus, because they heard about what was going on, but also they wanted to see Lazarus, who was previously dead. And there's a lot of previouslys when you deal with Jesus. You ever notice that? The man previously born blind, well, actually he was born blind, but the previously blind dude, the previously lame dude, the previously dead girl, the previously, you know, when Jesus comes into the scene of a person's life, things change. Things are different. And they wanted to see Lazarus. And even some of the religious leaders were turning to Jesus because of what has happened. So Jesus doesn't just give talk. He gives proof of who he is and what he can do. We don't have blind faith as Christians. And I'm not quite sure where that comes from. Well, you just got to trust. It's blind faith. No, we have faith in a risen Savior, an historically risen Savior, a God who has created the universe. Everything that we have in Christ is substantiated. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he proved it with Lazarus. He proved it with his own resurrection from the dead. And so this is laying out the groundwork for what's to come six days later at the cross. So in that mindset, turn over to chapter 14, verse 1. Now, we're at the point where the Last Supper has just happened. Judas has been sent away. Jesus is giving, again, those last key teachings to the disciples before they head out to the Garden of Gethsemane. So we're, we're right before the cross now, okay? Right before the crucifixion. And he's comforting them. Chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? You got to love Thomas. You know, I don't think he's so much doubting Thomas is the vocal Thomas. He says what everybody else is thinking. All right. The rest of the disciples didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead when they were first told. Thomas was the one who vocalized it. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip goes on to say, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You, around me, you're, you have an understanding of who the Father is and what he's like. In verses one through four, Jesus makes it very clear where he's going and what he's doing, okay? He says, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. 
And when I do, I will come back and bring you back to my father's house. Now, this is a picture of the Jewish betrothal period, all right? For a Jew, they would have a total understanding of what Jesus is talking about. What would happen in a Jewish wedding type of procedure is, and this was Mary and Joseph, okay? What would happen is you would have a man and a woman betrothed to each other. They are legally bound to each other. It's a legal marriage, but it is not a consummated marriage, okay? During this time, the groom would go to his father's house and would build a home for him and his bride on the father's estate. And then when the father determined that it was the right time for the wedding to happen, then he would send the son to go get his bride and bring her to her new home. And the bride never knew when that was going to be. Even the groom didn't know when it was going to be, only the father. Remember, Jesus says, you know what? Nobody knows the day or the hour, not even the son, but the father knows. That's an allusion to the, the betrothal period. And so what Jesus is saying here is, look, all right, we've got this relationship. I'm going to go away. I'm going to the father. And so he was making it clear where he was going. I'm going to the Father. I'm preparing a place for you. And when everything's ready and the Father sends me back, I'm coming to get you and to take you home. That's what Jesus is telling him. We're in that betrothal period. Jesus will come back. You know, Keith Green had a song and I love, I love the, the imagery where he says, you know, God made the universe. He made everything in, in six days, but he's been working on our home for 2,000 years. And it's just, you know, it's, it's a song and everything, but just to think that Jesus has prepared a place for us with him and the Father in heaven for all eternity, that's just cool. And that's what Jesus is telling him. Don't be afraid. Things are going to get really messy in the next few hours. Jesus is, is preparing them. Don't be afraid. I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm coming back. And I'm going to take you home. It's okay. Be encouraged. That's the groundwork that Jesus is giving here. And Thomas is like, Lord, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. And he makes that emphatic statement, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and nobody gets to the Father unless they come through me. And we've already looked at that with him being the door, right? You don't get into the sheepfold unless you go through him, the door. I am the way, exclusive. Please understand, this is not an inclusive statement. Jesus did not say, I am a way, I am a truth, and I am a life. 
He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. That's it. Wow. That's a little narrow, isn't it? Yeah, and Jesus also said, the way to destruction is broad, but to life is narrow and fewer those who find it. Well, that doesn't feel very good to a lot of people. And we'll delve into this at length in just a moment. This is very exclusive. I am the only way to the Father. I am the only truth. Period. Jesus reveals the truth about who the Father is, about eternity, about himself, about life and purpose. Every element of life, the Lord gives us insight to what it's really all about. We mess up our lives so much because we do things what's right in our own eyes rather than doing what the Lord lays out in his word. He's the truth. And he is the source of life and the essence of life itself. He is the Zoe, okay? And if you've been in my classes enough, you know Zoe is the essence of life, what it's really all about. So Jesus is being very, very emphatic here. In the Garden of Gethsemane, which was going to happen just a few hours later, Jesus goes, and it's interesting, you know, here he says, I am the only way, boom. Then he's in the garden, he's sweating blood, he is under intense grief and pressure of about what's to take place. And he prays to the Father, if there's any other way, he knows there's not. But in that, that grieving, if there's any other way, please let this cup pass from me. Three times he prayed that. Well... The cup didn't pass, right? So if there's another way to get to God other than Jesus, God was really cruel in not telling Jesus that, or Jesus just didn't get his facts straight. And I don't think either are the case. Jesus said, I'm the way. That was solidified in the Garden of Gethsemane and purchased and anchored at the cross validated at the resurrection. He is it. Now, here comes the great objection. So if somebody never hears about Jesus, and somebody never hears the gospel, God is going to condemn them to hell. Is that what you're saying? Have you ever heard that? What about the people who've never heard of Jesus. They're going to get sent to hell because of that? The answer is no. They're not going to be sent to hell because of that. And what I say from here on out, I want to be very, very clear. Okay? We're going to look at Scripture and let the Word of God speak for itself. God will not condemn anybody to hell. We've already seen that Jesus is the one who judges the quick and the dead. Jesus is the one with the authority over life and death and judgment. We will not be standing before God the Father. 
we will stand before Jesus, the Savior. That's pretty ominous. Also, we are not condemned to hell because we didn't hear about Jesus. We didn't hear the gospel. We are condemned and judged because of our sin. The rejection of Jesus Christ is the supreme sin because he is the only way for us to be saved. He is the only source of grace, the only source of forgiveness, the only hope. So if we do not receive Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, we will not be forgiven of our sin and we will face his judgment. And that judgment is eternal and it's hell. Okay? People throw out really quick, oh, so God's going to condemn people because they didn't hear about Jesus. No. We're condemned because of sin. Our sin that we do. But what about the people who never hear the gospel? What about people who've never heard of Jesus? Open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. And let's go to chapter 1, verse 18. Familiar passage. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived even or ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So God's wrath upon humanity for their unrighteousness, their sin, There is a general revelation of God in creation. Anybody, almost anybody, you know, anybody that's got, you know, the most childlike understanding can look at the stars or a flower or the landscape or an animal and understand that there is a creator. They may not understand all the details about him, But they go, somebody made this. It's general revelation of God, his eternal nature. Somebody outside this sphere had the power and the ability to create this incredible wonder called the universe. For those who do not want to face that creator, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness change the truth of God for a lie. They worship the creation rather than the creator because they don't want to face the creator. They make a God in their own image, which God says not to do. So we have the general revelation of God's attributes in creation. And then we have the moral uh, general revelation as well. Look in chapter 2 of Romans. Verse 13, 
Uh, let's, let's start in 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So he's speaking Jew and Gentile. You know, you sin and you don't have the law, you're still going to be judged. You sin and you've got the law, you're still going to be judged, period. For it is not the hearers of the law, and the Jews have this. We've got the law, we've got the law, but they weren't doing it. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So this is very emphatic. There is judgment for sin. Jesus does the judging. And our conscience bears witness. And the conflict of conscience accuses us of our sin or excuses us. I think it's safe to say that it is universal. Every person on the face of the planet understands a basic inner sense of right, wrong, good, evil. Nobody teaches a child to disobey. Nobody teaches a child to rebel. Nobody teaches a child to lie. We do it right out of the gate. Mommy and daddy, you know, I, I, all of us can look back at our own lives. Don't do this. It's bad. What do we do? Wait till mom or dad isn't looking and we'll do it. Don't touch that, okay? There's our nature. And then we know we've done that which we should not have done. And so when we're confronted for our sin, we pull an atom. I didn't do that. Nope, not me. Well, you're the only kid in the whole house. Dad's at work, and I didn't do it. So who did? You ever see the family circle? Remember that cartoon? There was, a, there was a little invisible character, and his name was not me. Because all the kids were like, not me, not me, not me. You know, so here's not me running around the house doing all the things because, of course, nobody did it. Not me did it. We lie. We pull an atom, shift the blame. Lord, it wasn't me. It was Eve. Yeah, she, the woman you gave me, she did it. And here's Eve. I, hey, you know, that, that animal you made, you know, the snake, he, he did it. Passing the buck. Inside of us, we know. We know. And I think it's, again, safe to say, barring those who have done everything they can to reject any consciousness 
or acknowledgement of God in any way, shape, or form, the atheist, the devout atheist, everybody believes that one day when we leave these bodies, we will stand before something or someone and be judged for our deeds and rewarded or condemned accordingly, right? You look at any religion out there, there's an understanding of judgment, our deeds being weighed in the balance, and then being punished or rewarded in accordance with the way we lived our lives. It's a part of our nature because we were designed to commune with God. So how does this work? If somebody does not know Jesus, somebody does not know the gospel, how does it work? What do we know? Okay, and I'm just going to give you a few verses, all right? John 3, 16, what do we know? God loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We know that, okay? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. People say, well, you know what? Everybody's been talking about Jesus coming back and he didn't come back yet. You know, he's been sent out forever. And Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, but he is patient because he desires that all, um, that none perish, but that all come to repentance. His heart is to see people saved and forgiven. That's why he gave Jesus. That's why he delays dropping the hammer on us. He knows when to do it. But time and time again, God says in the scriptures, I do not delight in the death of the wicked. He says it to Israel two times, I think, in the book of Ezekiel. I take no delight in the death of the wicked. Therefore, please repent and turn. Come to me. All right? I don't want to drop the hammer on you. So please, I beseech you. God loves people. That's why he sent his only begotten son. Okay? Now, go to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, verse 26. Paul says as he's preaching in, in Athens, And he made God, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now listen. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel literally grope in the darkness their way toward him and find him yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as one of as some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring being them meaning creations of God being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There it is, black and white. Everybody's going to stand before Jesus. All right? So, how do people accept and engage with Jesus if they've never heard of Jesus? How did it work in the Old Testament? Adam, Noah, Enoch, Abel, on down the line. Abram, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph, David. Who did they worship and who did they interact with? God? Yes. But who specifically? And we've talked about this, about Jesus in the Old Testament. Yahweh. When God manifested himself in the Old Testament to people, it's always Yahweh. The pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. So people were engaging with Yahweh, Jesus, looking toward a sacrifice that was to come. We follow the incarnate Jesus and rest upon the sacrifice that has already happened. Both groups looking to the same point in time, the cross, okay? They didn't have a full picture of everything. We can look back and go, oh, that makes so much sense. Look at all this stuff. They just knew Yahweh was the real deal and the one to follow. And they worshiped him and followed him in hope of redemption. By faith, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about by faith, these people believed and they were counted as right before God because they were putting their faith in Yahweh. They were following him. Think of um, Jethro. Okay, not the Beverly Hills Billies, Jethro, but Jethro from, from uh, I, yeah, that's just who I see when I read Exodus. But anyway, um, but it's not him. It's Moses' father-in-law. He was a priest of Midian. And he comes out to meet Moses and the people of, of Israel in the wilderness. And he sees what Yahweh has done. And he says to Moses and to the leaders of Israel, now I know that Yahweh is the true God. Apparently as a priest of Midian, he was worshiping something or somebody else. And now he has a revelation of who the real God is. And he worships God and sacrifices to God. Okay, Rahab, all right, prostitute in Canaan. She doesn't know a whole lot, but she knows and she tells the spies, I know that Yahweh is with you and I want to be on his side. Therefore, please spare me and my family. And she, not, and I love this, not only did she turn to Yahweh, but she was a great, 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 grandma of Jesus. Isn't that cool? A Canaanite prostitute in the lineage of the Messiah. 
She put her faith in Yahweh. Naaman, a Syrian general, has leprosy. Somebody says, you know, there's this dude in Israel. Um, like, he can, like, prophesy and things like that. Maybe go talk to him. And Elijah doesn't even talk to him. He just sends Gehazi and says, okay, you know, just go tell him to go dip in the Jordan, which is a dirty river, okay? And Naaman's like, no way. I am not doing that. There are much better rivers in, in Syria. I am not doing this. And the, his, his servants say, you know what? If he had told you to do something great, you would have done it, right? All he's saying is go dip in the river, man. And Naaman did, and he came out, his flesh totally restored. And so he goes back to Elijah, and he says, I know the God, El, okay, the general term for God, is the true God. And I want to give you a gift. And Elijah says, by Yahweh, I will not take anything from you. I did not do this. He did. And Naaman's response is beautiful. He says, then do this for me. I know Yahweh is the true God. And I will worship him alone. Please give me some dirt from Israel. I'm going home to Syria. And I'm going to make an altar. And I will follow Yahweh all my days. And by the way, I've got to help my, my king. When he goes in to worship his God, he kind of rests on me and everything. And when he bows, I, I help him you know, get down to bow before his king. I want you to understand, Elijah, that if I'm having to bow to help him out, I am not bowing to that God. It's Yahweh alone. He's my God. And so here's this guy. He doesn't know squat about Yahweh. He does not know the law. All he knows is that Yahweh healed him and is powerful and mighty and he's dedicated himself, repented of his gods, and he's following Yahweh. And that's what he goes home to Syria with. I got Yahweh. Look what Yahweh did for me. You know, that's what Jethro went back with. He went back with, I got Yahweh. Rahab, I got Yahweh. I got Jesus. I'm following Jesus. God worked, Jesus worked, in a much bigger spectrum than we understand because of just the way we look at things. Abram engaged, he was not a Jew. Yahweh went and met him and engaged with him and introduced himself to him and brought him into a relationship with him. Okay? At the same time, about, maybe a little earlier, that's up in Iraq. You've got this dude, Job. He's down in the area of the Jordan, of, of the country Jordan, Edom, okay? He's got a relationship with Yahweh. Such a relationship that Yahweh, if you look in the book of Job, Yahweh is talking to Satan and says, have you considered my servant Job? Whoa. And then you got this other guy. I think it's Jesus. There's some debate on that. Melchizedek, the prince of Salem in the area of, of Jerusalem. You've got God moving, okay? Understand, I'm not saying there's 
multiple ways to God. There are not. It's Jesus alone. But Yahweh is moving all over the place. He's chosen to work through Abram to be Abraham through whom the Messiah would come. But you've got, you've, you've got Naaman being salt and light out in Syria. You've got Rahab. You've got all these people. The Ethiopian eunuch, he didn't know anything. He's traveling back to Ethiopia. He's got the book of Isaiah. He's searching for God. I don't get this stuff. God puts it on Philip's heart. Go talk to the guy. He gets born again. He puts his hope in Christ. What does he have to take home to Ethiopia? He's got Jesus and at least the book of Isaiah, okay? And he goes back with the relationship with Christ. And you see this time and time in Scripture where God reaches out and meets people. Jesus reaches out and meets people. And God doesn't change all right, the primary way that people are born again is by people going out, missions and things like that, and bringing the gospel to people. But what about places where they don't have that? Do you think God is big enough to reach out and Jesus is big enough to introduce himself to people who are looking for him? When there's no other way? Yeah, he is. And there are stories after stories. And when we lived in Israel, you know, and, and I, I, I know people who, you know, they were uh, um, Muslim and all and either had a vision of Jesus or a dream of Jesus or knew people who did, who got born again as Jesus introduced himself to them. And living for the Lord. All over the place that happens. They may not have the Old and New Testament. But you think Jesus might be big enough to keep them? And the Holy Spirit strong enough to teach them? Again, what did the Ethiopian eunuch have? I mean, he didn't have a church out there. You know, it's like, hey, we're going to have a prayer meeting and open up the scriptures. Like, I got, I got Isaiah here and I got Jesus. I got the Holy Spirit. Naaman, he had dirt in Jesus, you know. So I think when people say, hey, what about those people? Understand that God is big enough. He put, he causes people to look for him. And there are people all over the world. They may be in a Buddhist environment or a Hindu environment or a Muslim environment. And nobody can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. Nobody. It doesn't matter if you're in the Bible Belt of America or the Amazon jungle. You're not going to get to him without him working in your heart. Period. He's big enough. And as he does that, he's able to keep us. And the beautiful thing is, if you have somebody like Naaman, okay, let's say there was no gospel and no understanding of Yahweh where he was from in Syria. 
As soon as he went home, guess what? There is a witness for Yahweh in Syria. The Ethiopian eunuch, there is now a witness for Jesus in Syria. Light has come to the darkness. Jesus had 12, you know. So I think it's safe to say that Jesus is big enough to introduce himself to people the way he always has. He's always going to be the only way, the truth, and the light. My responsibility is to do my part to be salt and light where he has placed me. And if the gospel goes to somebody in the remote regions of the Amazon basin, they become salt and light. And God's got it covered. It all boils down to this. From the beginning, God has pursued people. From the beginning, God has made a way through Jesus and Christ alone to be restored into relationship with him. Jesus came so that anyone who believes in him might be saved. Even if you just know a teeny tiny bit. There's people out there who have a dream or a vision and they go, I think Jesus is the real way. And I'm following him. And that may be all they have. But they're following Jesus and the Holy Spirit's big enough to keep them. And ultimately too, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, he went to the grave. He came back from the grave. We have hope. We don't believe in mythology. We believe in a person who historically was crucified and historically rose from the dead. An historical event, not religion, not ideology, not legend and mythology. A real person who really came back from the dead under his own power and authority and paid the price for the sins of the world. So whoever would put their trust in him would not be judged but have eternal life. Muslims don't have that. Buddhists, Hindus don't have that. There is no hope apart from Christ. For a Buddhist or a Hindu, you're fighting your whole life trying to break a circle of reincarnation so that you might reach enlightenment, which doesn't even exist. There's no proof. But that's what you're slaving over to try to be right before God, whoever that might be. For Muslims, you try to do your best before Allah, but Allah's fickle. In Islam, he changes his mind. A person will die as a Muslim and never know where they stand when they enter into eternity. They can pretty much bank that they're going to face judgment in their belief system. Not so with Jesus. He does the work, not us. We are poor beggars with no hope, no righteousness of our own, no ability. And so God in his love sent his only begotten son that in the name of Christ alone may salvation come to the world. 
That's it. And because he's done it and proved who he is and what he has done on the cross, we have hope. Why am I going to live forever? Because Jesus said so. Well, how do you know that's true? Because he rose from the dead. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he says he's coming back for me. I have hope because my Savior's alive. My Savior loves me, and I'm safe in him, not in my ability. All I have to do is hang on to the vine. I just got to hang on to Jesus, and Jesus hangs on to me. Nobody can snatch me out of his hand. Isn't that beautiful? I really believe, I used to fight with this. It's like, God, what about all these people that have never heard the gospel? And as I was digging into this and I came across name, it's like, wait a minute. You look at him, you look at what you've done in the Old Testament. You're the one reaching out to people. If you could do that then, why can't you do that today? Oh, wait, uh, you do. There's stories all over the place of Jesus meeting people. And people getting saved as Christ comes into their life. Isn't that cool? I will say this. Just because of what I've laid out, don't take it as, yep, that's the way it is. Got the problem solved. Okay? I really wrestled with this. It's like, God, it makes a lot of sense. It makes really good sense. But I'm also like prone to be imperfect or stupid. <laughs> but I felt like I needed to share this because this is a thing that a lot of people wrestle with and Christians don't know how to respond. And I think, I think this fixes it. But you take it to the Lord. You take it to the Word. And I'm not saying there are multiple paths to Christ. Okay, I'm making that clear. What I am saying is Jesus is able to come to anybody, anywhere. He uses us, and that is his desire and his plan. But he is not confined to us. 